0: open your bibles to matthew chapter 2 and verse 18 i want you to notice this verse that's why i'm asking you to turn there because we probably have all read it many times it's a part we think of as the christmas story but it seems a bit like a, a rubik's cube you know what like why is this here what is exactly uh, the bible telling us here I finished my series on eschatology right up just before Christmas, the Sunday before Christmas. So we looked at the rapture and the millennial kingdom, the Antichrist and all of that, the great white throne judgment. So I didn't get to preach as much on Christmas, but I did last week an event that took place after Christmas. And this event takes place after what we think of as the Christmas time frame. Matthew 2, verse 18 says this, and it's a quotation. You can see it in your Bible that it's in italics or it's indented, meaning it's a quotation. It's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah. Where's Ramah? A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, who had passed away, Long time prior, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, you know the context of this verse. This verse is planted right in the story of Herod becoming enraged over the wise men coming from the east and saying, Where's the king of the Jews? And he said, well, you go find him and then come back and tell me where he is and I wanna come down and worship him. Of course, they were warned by the Lord not to go back and tell Herod where he was. Herod goes down to Bethlehem or his soldiers do and they wipe out all the infants in that region that were two years old and under. So that's the context, of course, of the story. But probably you've read this, I hope, and you have wondered like I have, How does this verse really connect? This verse in Matthew that's quoted from Jeremiah, how does it connect with the Christmas story? I think it would be good for us to think about it, to ponder it, because it has a history, and it really shows us the fullness of Scripture, how Scripture is tied in prophetically with events from the past. So I've entitled my message, Rachel's Trail of tears leads us to Jesus. Rachel's trail of tears, because it mentioned Rachel was heard weeping for her children. Rachel's trail of tears leads us to Jesus. In the 1830s, here in America, the United States passed the Indian Removal Act. The Indian Removal Act, which forced 125,000 Indians. To move from the regions west of the Appalachians and as far north as Michigan, as far south as Florida and Georgia. 125,000 Indians were rounded up in that region west of the Appalachians and they were moved to west of the Mississippi, primarily to Oklahoma. The Supreme Court of the United States at one point tried to intervene and step in and declared the Indian Removal Act to be unconstitutional. That was when President Jackson infamously quipped, the Supreme Court has given their verdict, now let's see them enforce it. He was saying, you can rule, but I'm the president, I'm going to make it happen. By some accounts, one-third of the Indians on this journey One-third of the 125,000 that were in this resettlement to Oklahoma, one-third of them died along the way. That's why it's called the Trail of Tears. For some, that circuitous route, whether it be from Michigan or Florida or Georgia or states in between, their journey was over 2,000 miles that they were traveling, and so it's called the Trail of Tears. That American landmark, helps us understand a similar trail of tears in the Bible, Rachel's Trail of Tears. It weaves from Mesopotamia, and if you recall, that's kind of the cradle of civilization, and that's where the nation of Israel really started from, because Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees, the ancient name, For Mesopotamia. He was called out of Mesopotamia, and so was his son and his wife, and then later Jacob goes back there. They're called out of Mesopotamia, and they go into the land of Palestine or the land of Canaan, and then they travel down to Egypt, and then they come back and they land in Bethlehem. That's where the story kind of ends, we would say. And it begins with the patriarchs way back in Genesis, and it winds down through the Prophet Jeremiah in his book, and then ends in Matthew chapter 2. Ultimately, this trail of tears points to Jesus Christ, our Messiah. So, when we look at the trail of tears, we see, I think, three specific mileposts. This is how I've organized my ideas here from the scripture around these three mileposts on the trail of tears. Number one, Rachel certainly wept over her father's betrayal. Rachel certainly wept over her father's betrayal. If you recall, Abraham was called out of the year of Chaldees, and he was called into a land, the Bible says, that he knew not, that God was preparing for him, and he never really possessed the land. His future generations would possess the land. He entered into the land by faith, the Bible tells us, and he's listed as the father of the faithful. After he's in the land of Canaan and he's looking around for a daughter in law, uh, someone for his son Isaac to marry. Isaac married quite late in life. He says, I don't want my son to marry one of these Canaanite women, one of these pagan women, these idol worshipers. And so he sends his servant all the way back to Mesopotamia to gain a wife for his son Isaac. The servant brings Rebekah back. And Isaac knows his wife, Rebekah, and they eventually have two sons. You know the story. It's often called Jacob and Esau, but Esau was the older. It's really Esau and Jacob. Esau was the eldest and Jacob was the younger. The couple bore two sons, Jacob and Esau. And while Jacob was called a profane man, that comes from a word that means outside the temple. Profane means to have no connection with religious things, no interest in spiritual matter. He's called a profane man. It wasn't because every other word he cussed like a sailor. That's not what it's saying. It's just he didn't have interest in spiritual matter. And both of his parents immediately recognized that. He was a hunter. He could fix a good stew, that's for sure. He deceived his own father Isaac with that. But really, he had no interest in spiritual matters. But Jacob, over a period of time, began to have a value for spiritual matters. So when they were both of marrying age, Rebekah says, hey, I don't want my son Jacob. And he was favored by her. And Esau was favored by Isaac. Bad thing for parents to do. But she said, I don't want my son Jacob marrying one of these pagan women. So she sends Jacob off to find a wife from her brother's family. But there's a couple of things that happen in between. You know the story. Jacob deceived his brother Esau first out of his birthright, which was the larger portion of the inheritance, and out of the blessing that came from his father. He pretended to be Esau, so he got the birthright, and then later he got the blessing from his father. And Esau comes in with this venison, and he fixes it as his father had asked. His father said, fix me some venison, and I'll give you a blessing. And he fixes it, and he brings it to his father, and he says, now give me the blessing, father. And he says, I've already blessed you. He said, no, you haven't. You haven't blessed me. And then Isaac realizes that he has been deceived by his son Jacob, and he'd given the blessing to Jacob. He realized that was God's plan all along. Jacob wouldn't have had to do what he did. Rebecca wouldn't have had to do the deception that she did. God would have given it to Jacob all along. So realizing that now Esau is over-the-top angry at his brother, He's cheated him out of the birthright. He's deceived him out of the blessing. He says, as soon as my father dies, I'm gonna kill my brother. And he made it known. And Rebecca knew that. So she sent Jacob off to Mesopotamia for two reasons: to avoid being killed by his brother, who was much stronger and capable of killing him. Jacob was kind of a house plant. He hung around his mother in the tent. And Esau was a man that was a hunter. There would have been no match there. We would have made mincemeat pie out of him. She sends him off to Mesopotamia, first to protect his life, and second to get a wife from her brother's household. So there's kind of the background. Upon arriving, Jacob instantly, and it was a long journey. All the way across the Fertile Crescent and he arrives there and the servants are waiting to water their camels. And remember, Jacob's not a strong man. The Bible never presents him as a kind of an outdoorsy strong guy. And he sees Rachel. And he instantly falls in love with her. The Bible tells us she was a beautiful woman, a face and a form. She had, she had a lovely figure and she had a beautiful face and, and she just knocked him on his knees, really. As soon as he saw her, he was he was a goner. He was stone cold in love, okay? And from that, he instantly moves the stone off the well and waters all of her animals. And, and he does this feat of strength and he shows what a servant he has. And she asks, well, who are you? And she, he said, well, I'm uh, Jacob and, and I'm here because my mother sent me. And then she realizes, you're the son of my father's sister. You got to come into our house. And so he does. He comes into the house and he meets Laban and Laban is Leah and Rachel's father and remember Jacob's name his original name is deceiver because he supplanted his brother twice and God put him right in close proximity really face to face with Laban who was a better deceiver than Jacob I mean Jacob is the deceiver but he gets deceived by Laban in the worst kind of way So I want you to notice the passage here. Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to begin reading at verse uh, 13. He's now in the land of Mesopotamia. He's met his uncle. He's willing to do whatever he has to do to marry this gal, Rachel. He is smitten. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. And brought him to the house. So he told Laban all of these things. What had transpired. Why he's there. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Just as a house guest. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? No pay? Of course not. I'm much more generous than that. Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. Maybe she had uh, bad vision. Maybe she had a little bit of an eye disease. Maybe her eyes teared. Whatever, we're not told. But her eyes were delicate or weak, I think it's translated. Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years. You know, he doesn't have any money. He can't pay a dowry. So he says, I'll tell you what, I'll trade my labor For your daughter. I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So basically, a handshake and an agreement, and they both have an understanding. At least Jacob had an understanding. He's laboring seven years to get this woman that he's fallen in love with. So Jacob served him for Rachel, seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only as a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. That's a great verse to quote to your wife, you married men. <laughs> seven years, it seems like a few days. It's passed so quickly. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled. My days of service to you are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold it was Leah that was in the tent with Jacob. And he said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Was it not Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Had bad lighting, remember, in the tents in those days. And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, maybe that was a rule, maybe it wasn't. But it was never explained to Jacob. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And obviously from a reaction, he didn't know that was the rule. He understood that he was laboring for Rachel. What is this that you have done? Was it not for Rachel that I have served you? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. Now remember, we've just dealt with eschatology. A week in the Hebrew language can be a week of days or it could be a week of years. And again here, it would appear that it's a week of years because he just served one week of years to get what he thought was Rachel, but he ended up getting Leah. You fulfill her week, another seven years, and you'll get her. Fulfill her week, and we will give this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. So we we have a pretty good idea on this story. You've read it before. And... Jacob arrives, meets Rachel, falls in love, says, what do I got to do to get this woman? How do I purchase her dowry? How do I pay her dowry? Which is common not only in ancient world but very common still today, as you know. And he said, you work for me and and I'll give her to you. No uh, caveats there. No addendums at the bottom of the marriage contract about older before the younger. Any of that. So he wakes up the next morning in the tent and it wasn't Rachel it's Leah and he goes storming mad into the master tent or the big house or whatever was that Laban was dwelling he said you've deceived me here's the guy that has deceived his own brother he said you've deceived me why how could you do this to me and no doubt Jacob and Rachel had fallen in love Maybe we would use the term they courted for seven years. And he assumed that that was the woman that he was marrying. But she was quarantined to her room. I like using that word quarantine because it's very appropriate right now. She was quarantined to her room that night. She is weeping bitterly over the fact, how could my dad do this to me? Deceive My husband-to-be betray me for my sister? How could my dad do this to me? How the tears must have flowed realizing her father's betrayal and deception, and it was done primarily for financial gain. Jacob had become quite a productive worker, as you know the story. And Laban was prospering. And, and he wanted to keep him around another seven years. So it was done primarily for financial gain. You can imagine how Rachel certainly wept over her father's betrayal. This conjecture on my part, it would appear that after the wedding and the completion of Leah's week, that's what he says in verse 27. He says, Fulfill her week, speaking of Leah, You fulfill her week, her honeymoon, maybe we would say. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me for another seven years. It would appear that Jacob and Leah were together for a week and he gives Rachel to Jacob after that one week passes, but he still has to serve the seven years to pay her off. Rachel is either after that week or after seven years given to Jacob. And Jacob serves as an indentured servant, really, to Laban for another seven years. And this marriage arrangement begins a lifelong rivalry between these sister wives, we could say, between these sister wives who consistently competed for Jacob's love and attention. What Laban did was wrong because it was deception and it was betrayal, but it it really forced them into a marriage that never worked for either of his daughters. It was never a happy marriage really for either of his daughters because they were married to the same man. Number one, Rachel certainly wept over her father's betrayal. Number two, Rachel bitterly wept over her personal barrenness. In the Bible, there are reoccurring themes. We call them motifs. And one of the common ones in the Old Testament is called the barren wife motif. Matter of fact, especially in this family, Sarah was barren until she was in her 90s. Rebecca was barren. And then Rachel was barren, called the barren wife motif. Rachel bitterly wept over her personal barrenness. Now, Rachel was an idolater. She was. There's no other way around it. She believed in those idols, those household gods. She was an idolater. Jacob married her because he didn't want to marry a Canaanite, at least His mother didn't want him to marry a Canaanite because they were idolaters, but he ends up marrying an idolater anyhow. Matter of fact, in the story that we read earlier, Laban says, your God spoke to me last night and told me not to say anything good or bad to you. He didn't say, our God. Remember, Abraham was an idol worshiper and he came to know the Lord later. Isaac came to know the Lord. He's passing down the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises to the nation of Israel. So Jacob married her because he didn't want to marry a Canaanite, and so he married into his mother's family. Nevertheless, her father, Laban, worshipped idols. The Bible tells us that. And when Jacob left Laban with Leah and Rachel and their two handmaids, as well as an inordinate amount of Laban's herds... Rachel absconded with Laban's idols. The Bible says 31, chapter 31 of Genesis, verse 19. She stole her father's household gods. She believed that these gods were going to prosper her and prosper maybe her family. And God had to shake her loose from those idols God had to shake her loose from those household gods and the belief in them that she was raised from. Sometimes God has to bring events into our life that really shake us up in the things that we have been trusting in, believing in, putting our confidence in. And so God, you know, brings the earthquake and everything is moved and then we have to look up and say, God, I've been trusting in the wrong things. That's what he does with Rachel. Now, get it. Laban was disappointed to lose his livestock and he was certainly surprised to lose his daughters, but he couldn't abide losing his idols. They meant everything to him. That's why he mounted up his horses and his camel and they rode for seven days towards the west and catching Jacob and his caravan, his wives and their servants and handmaids in Gilead, that Bible country took him seven days to catch up with him. he couldn't abide losing those idols, so he tracked jacob's caravan down. He ransacked the tents, turning things upside down, opening the drawer, dumping the drawers out, looking through all their baggage and and all of that and he finally the last one he comes to is rachel 's tent. maybe he suspected that she was the last one that would steal his idols. I don't know. And he comes into her tent, verse 35, chapter 31 of Genesis says, and she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but he did not find his household gods. So she deceived her own father. She had him. She was sitting on those household idols. That's a good thing to do with them, too, by the way, just sit on them. He goes away an angry man. A frustrated man. The nation of Israel was birthed into idolatry. That sounds like a strong statement, but it's true. Seems like God spent generation after generation weaning them off of their idol. And it was no small task. They were birthed into idolatry. And idol worship would be a besetting sin for them throughout their history until they went into captivity. After captivity, idolatry was no longer a problem for the last 500 years or 400 years. We call the 400 silent years of Old Testament history. And it started way back with... With Aaron, remember they had just gotten delivered out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. And what is Moses is up on the Mount, Mount Sinai, and Aaron fashions a golden calf and he says to the Israelites, Here, here is your God, worship them. And they're worshiping these golden calves. And it goes all the way to Solomon who brought these wives in from various pagan lands and and built their idols and brought their idols with them and allowed them to worship them. And then as a result, the people of Israel worshiped those idols and those false gods. Idol worship tracked Israel all of its history. It's not surprising that it was part of Rachel's story. Idolatry was found with the 12 tribes throughout their story, and it is a sin that eventually led them into exile. That's the primary reason they went into exile, for forsaking the Lord for the gods of the nations around them. Now, ironically, Rachel is known as the mother of Israel. She is known as the mother of Israel, although she was childless for many years. But she's known as the mother of Israel. She was the wife that Jacob dearly loved. He really had four wives. He had, Jacob, he had Leah and Rachel, but he had their two handmaids as well. And he had as many children from them as he did from his wives. But she was the wife that Jacob dearly loved. But despite her favored status with her husband, more than anything else, she wanted children. And she was bitter. Towards her husband, she was bitter towards God, maybe towards the household God, but bitter towards God about her barrenness. Her sister Leah, she was fertile myrtle. I mean, she got pregnant all the time. Jacob could throw his pants on the bed and she'd get pregnant. I mean, she had child after child. And so here's fertile myrtle, her sister, and here's barren Sharon. You know, she couldn't get pregnant and she's bitter about it. And Leah gave Jacob four sons, and they're listed here. And Rachel pleads with her husband. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1 says, Give me children or I die. I don't want to live if I can't be a mother. I don't want to be embarrassed. The handmaids all have children. My sister has children. You give me children or I want to die. And by the way, she fulfills that. She does die. Give me children or I die. Then after she had her first child, Joseph, we all know Joseph. He's famous in the book of Genesis. A man who's listed without flaw in our Bible. Certainly he had him, he was a sinner. But after she has her first child, Joseph, she immediately prays and begs God for more. And her life ended in that prayer being answered. Her prayer was answered, and that was the end of Rachel. Having her prayer answered. She died giving birth to her second son. She only had two, and his name was Benjamin, as you know. Where did she die? There at Ramah. She died at Ramah. She named this son Ben-oni, Ben-oni, which means son of my tears. Soon as she's passed, Jacob renames him Benjamin which means son of my right hand. He said, I'm not going to have a child growing up with the moniker son of my tears, son of my death, son of my sorrows. And he names him son of my right hand, favored son. And he was the favored son, son of my right hand. So in Genesis 35, and I think it's worth noting there, we, we read these verses earlier. I think we did. Kind of bouncing around here. Genesis 35, no, we didn't. Look at verse 16. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing from her, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. And she's buried at Ramah. She has this, this child, Benjamin, and she cries out while she's at Ramah. So these two sons born to Rachel... Became Jacob's favorite, Joseph and Benjamin, as we would say. Rachel's tears represented more than just unmet desires her desire to be a mother, her desire to have children, her desire to have the obvious blessing of God, which in the Old Testament was many times having a large family. Her tears represented more than just unmet desires. Her tears also point to the fact that she was dying and leaving her sons behind. She would never get to spend any time with them. She recognized that. Despite her earlier idolatry, though, I have absolute confidence that Rachel came to believe in Yahweh, and she wanted to see her children embrace the Abrahamic covenant. Because in her prayer, she's praying to God and she's not praying to the idols anymore. Somewhere along the way, they were discarded. She's praying to Jehovah. She's praying to Yahweh and the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham, passed down to Isaac and now passed down to Jacob. She knew it was going to go to the children. She wanted her children to embrace the true God. But she would never see that happen. Number three. Rachel prophetically wept over her posterity's sorrows. And out of the 12 tribes, out of the 12 sons of Jacob, it would seem as though Joseph and Benjamin suffered the worst. Rachel's children, Rachel's only two sons. So she prophetically wept over her posterity's sorrows. Both of Rachel's sons end up in exile, along with the rest of the 12 tribes down in Egypt. Joseph, her firstborn son which was favored status, no doubt, because Benjamin was very young. Jacob gave to his son Jacob the coat of many colors. He was, and his brothers despised him and hated him, and they were jealous of him. And so when he was off doing his father's business, they captured him, threw him in a pit, and they were going to kill him. And then Judah said, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do it. We'll have blood on our hands, our own brother's blood. Let's sell him into slavery. And sure enough, there's a caravan headed down to Egypt, and they sell their brother into slavery. You know the story. He works for Potiphar. Potiphar's wife wants to get her flesh hooks in him, and she pretends after a period of time that she's not going to achieve that goal. She realizes that, and so she pretends that she's been raped or attempted rape by Joseph, and he goes to prison. He's there for like 13 years. And because he can interpret dreams, he's exalted to the position of interpreting Pharaoh's dream, and he becomes second in all of the land. But not before a period of exile and sorrow and, and difficulty down in Egypt. And God, of course, was going before him and arranging all of that to happen. When Jacob died, all 12 tribes, all 12 sons and their posterity, were living as foreigners in exile in Egypt and later to become slaves. Now, the trail of tears, that's what we're talking about. Rachel's trail of tears, her barrenness, the deception of her father, the difficulties of her posterity. The trail of tears seems to go cold, but I want you to notice another item as well. If you look carefully, you can find this trail of tears. Remember in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11. The tribe of Benjamin, who were great warriors, they could take a sling and throw it. The Bible says a stone within a hair's breadth. They could hit the mark every time. They allowed a disenfranchised priest to come into the land of Gibeah in Benjamin. And the people of Gibeah were perverse. They were homosexuals. They were deviants. And they wanted to know the man. And he shoves his concubine out and they abuse her all night long. She's dead. He cuts her up and sends her 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they said, We can't abide this. This is horrific. Not just the sin of the Gibeonites, that's like Sodom and Gomorrah, but what's happened to this woman? She's been cut up and thrown out and and we got to do something. So what happens there, the other 11 tribes descend upon Benjamin and they lose several battles and then they mount forces. Essentially, they wipe out all the men in Benjamin except for a handful of them. And they're mourning. One of the tribes of Israel has been lost and we did it. We killed off our brother's posterity. And we've already vowed we would never give them our wives. And what are we going to do? So they went into a pagan land, rounded up a bunch of girls, and gave them to the men of Joseph, the handful that were left. And so the tribe was not stuffed out. So again, Rachel cries for her posterity. Benjamin was almost completely wiped out. The trail of tears continues. You can't help but hear Rachel's tears. Years later, the ten northern tribes were taken into captivity. They went to captivity first, as you know, because of their idolatry. Assyria conquered them and took them off into captivity. Judah, Benjamin, and the south remained faithful to the Lord there in Jerusalem where the temple was. But eventually they fell into idolatry. And... When the Babylonians, the next nation to conquer Israel, the southern tribes, round them up. What does the Bible tell us? They rounded them up, all the southern tribes, including Benjamin, Judah and Benjamin, and they corralled them in Ramah. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1, tells us that they were gathered up and then sent into exile, but they corralled them up in Ramah. Ramah, where Rachel died. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, where he had taken him bound in chains amongst all those who were carried away from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away to the captives of Babylon. So they brought them to Ramah, and right there is where Jeremiah is set free. He'd been warning them about their idolatry and warning them to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, and they didn't obey. So he is set free, but the rest of them are launched out of Ramah, exactly where Rachel wept and passed as well. Surveying Israel's idol-worship And now the loss of the Israelites to the Babylonian swords. The irony was too much for Jeremiah. He hears the mothers mourning the loss of their children as they're carted away to captivity on the very spot where Rachel died in childbirth and was buried. And he describes it this way. A voice is heard, this is Jeremiah's words, a voice is heard in Ramah lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah 31:15. So he pens down Rachel's loss of life and her prophetic seeing that her posterity would be hauled off to captivity and he recalls that whole event and he puts it down in holy writ and that's what Matthew is quoting Matthew chapter 2 but with the Lord there's always hope 70 years after being in captivity God resettles the Jewish remnant back in Canaan and messianic hope is rekindled we would say They're back in the land. They're anticipating the Messiah's return. And it would be fulfilled on that first Christmas morning. There in Bethlehem, when Jesus was born, the prophetic sorrows are wiped dry, maybe we would say. But then shortly after that, the trail of tears returns. Herod found out about the arrival of King Jesus as a baby And he sent his troops to slaughter the infants. Bethlehem was a small town, especially in those days. It was a very small town. And most scholars would say that those two years old and under, male two years and older, were probably 20 or less. Don't think Jerusalem. Think little village of Bethlehem. Probably 20 boys or less that were in the vicinity of Bethlehem. But nonetheless, if you were the mother of one of those boys, you wailed. As you saw your child hacked to pieces by Roman soldiers because of Herod's order. And Jesus is secreted away to Egypt so he was protected. And that is why Matthew, under inspiration, quotes from Jeremiah 31 15 and says, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping. In loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew 2.18. Now only a few miles away, for those of us who've had the privilege of going to the Bible lands and going to some of the sites there, you can go to Rachel's tomb. Even though (laughs) we're talking about way back in the Old Testament. We would say Abraham was about 2000 B.C. This is a couple generations removed from Abraham. So maybe 1800 B.C. uh, to 2000 A.D. We're talking almost 4,000 years, but you can still go to Rachel's tomb where Rachel was buried there. And only a few miles away from Ramah, north of Jerusalem, only a few miles away is Calvary. Calvary. And only if you distance a stone's throw from that is, of course, uh, the empty tomb of Christ. Rachel doesn't have to weep anymore because Christ wipes away all tears from our eyes. And he answers all of our sorrows. Rachel need weep no more because Jesus will return and comfort his people. And he will righteously reign over all the earth, including Ramah. It will not be a place of weeping and mourning anymore, but as Jeremiah, and just three verses later, Jeremiah 31 verse 4 says, it will become a place of dancing and a place of singing, which is, I think, so picturesque, so appropriate. We live in a time of sorrows and a place of sadness so often, and it will continue to be that way until Christ rules, until Christ reigns. In his righteous reign, and he wipes away the tears. Then there will be singing, worship, and dancing. This life can be a trail of tears, as Rachel experienced. It can be a a veil of sorrows, as we often say. Ultimately, all comfort and hope is found in Jesus Christ. Every time I do a funeral, we seem like we've had quite a few here lately. To the best of my ability, I try to point beyond the casket. And fortunately, some of the people who have died have been wonderful Christians and point to Christ who wipes away all sorrow. And he is the one that comforts us. We can come up and we can wrap our arms around somebody and say, sorry to hear your sister died, but we can't do it like Jesus Christ can and the Holy Spirit can. And just as Jesus' first coming fulfilled the promises of Jeremiah 31, and they were not gleeful promises, they were sad promises, that there would be more weeping on Rachel's descendants. Just as Christ's coming fulfilled that prophecy in Jeremiah about Rachel's trail of tears, so his second coming is just as surely going to be fulfilled. I would think that this is somewhat of an obscure verse in the Christmas story, somewhat of an obscure quotation from an Old Testament prophet. But we see how it was fulfilled time and time again. And just as he fulfilled it in the Old Testament sense, he will fulfill it in his second coming. All of the glad promises that are in Jesus Christ. And we can trust his word. And we can run to him for comfort in our times of trials and our veil of of sadness. Let's pray together today and just assure God that we trust his word. Father, there are many people here today that have had sorrow upon sorrow. And sometimes maybe they feel like they're being singled out. But we can run to you and we can say, God, comfort me. Meet my needs. My tears flow but Lord, you have redeemed me. You've redeemed this world someday. It will be completely redeemed and I take comfort in that reality. May our confidence in your word only grow stronger the longer we walk with you. That your word is trustworthy. And that you do all things well. And then, when sorrowful times come, we know they have purpose and they have Meaning and your will is being worked out. So, Lord, we run to you this year. We ask for your blessing. We ask that we will accomplish what you want us to accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.